reading from the book of Esther, chapters 9 and 10. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page, starts on page 415. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents who helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them as, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aradatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Aradai, and Vizatha, the ten sons. <laughs> the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested, and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day, and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts to, of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as days, sorry, days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and, the month, and as the month that had been turned for them, from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted that they, what they had started to do, and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, 
to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that this evil plan he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of all that they faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, we finally made it to the end. And I got to tell you, this has been one of the most uh, fruitful, fascinating studies that I've ever participated in. This book has been a challenge, and I'm really grateful that you've come along for the ride with me. This episode in Jewish history is not a shiny one. It's not a rousing tale driven by impeccable morality and exemplary character. And I think the Bible as a holy book is unique in this respect. Unique in that it pretty flagrantly presents the dark side of God's chosen leaders. But even when God's leaders don't have sterling character, his purposes aren't thwarted. And this is like the idea that we've circled around time and time again. God is still powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. He's powerfully present even if he's apparently absent. In fact, it is this hopeful assurance that we learn from the story of Esther that sustained many a Jew during the tragic years of the violence of the Holocaust. The book of Esther was treasured by those Jews in those Nazi death camps because it promised the survival of their race despite the apparent oncoming annihilation of that race. The book had such a stabilizing hold on these Jews in these death camps that if one of the Nazi soldiers caught a Jew with a copy of the book, they would kill them on the spot. But it might might surprise you to find out that you don't have to go back as far as the Holocaust to see the story of Esther impacting modern life. If you look down at verses 26 to 28, you'll see which aspect of this story is reaching out from the past and impacting the present. Look at verse 26. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term poor. Well, 
Por is the word for die, like the plural would be dice, so that the things that you throw. Archaeologists have actually uncovered uh, ancient por, porim, and these were these little uh, clay cubes that had dots on them that looked very much like modern-day dice. And this feast was named Porim after the term, uh, after the Purim that Haman had cast back in chapter 3, verse 7. You don't have to go back there, but he was casting lots, if you recall, to determine what the death day would be for the Jews, when the Persians were going to be attacking the Jews to kill them, to wipe them off the face of the, the earth. He was deciding their future with a mere roll of the dice. Well, continuing in verse 26 of chapter 9, it says, Therefore, because of all that, all that had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. And this, like today, in 2020, this is exactly what has happened. Next Monday, March 9th, next Monday, millions of Jews from all around the world will congregate in synagogues, in homes, in parks, in rec centers to celebrate the festival of Purim. I googled this this past week, and there's actually going to be 10 of these celebrations within 10 miles of where we're at right now. It's still a thing that happens, and not just in the Middle East, it's over here as well. And all of them are directly tied to this edict from Esther that she gives in today's text. We're thousands of years removed from the story of Esther, but the things God was doing still cast long shadows into the present where we're at now. Jews all over the world looking backward to make sense of the present, to make sense of the present and to find the strength to move forward. That's what celebrating Purim was all about for Esther. It was a stabilizing gaze backwards. The whole point is to remember, look at verse 26 again, to remember what they had faced and what had happened to them and, and really how God had intervened for them. That was the point of the feast. It helps them remember what was done and press into what should continue to be done. And it is no different for us as New Testament Christians. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week up here. The intent is to commemorate the gospel work of Christ in order to commemorate or in order to cultivate a gospel life for Christ. Commemorate the gospel of Christ, cultivate a life for Christ. Gospel commemoration leads to gospel cultivation. Gospel commemoration leads to gospel cultivation. So if you don't regularly commemorate the gospel with us here as we gather, and maybe in private as you meet with the Lord on a consistent basis through His Word and in prayer, by looking back and remembering what Jesus has done, if you don't regularly do that, is, is there any surprise why there isn't a gospel culture in your heart and in your home? Gospel commemoration leads to gospel cultivation, a living out of the good news of Jesus. Well, the festival of Purim is exactly this, commemorating God's good work of camouflaged protection. You can hardly see what God is up to, but he is certainly there. And that backwards gaze is meant to stabilize them in the present. That's what God has done. This is, that's what God is going to do. That's the point. So if we have forgotten the measure of God's love for us, just cast your gaze backwards to Calvary. It should stabilize you in the middle of your suffering. Well, 
Purim is full of celebration and it's full of levity. It's a very colorful festival these days. As the Jews remember their unlikely survival brought about by the camouflage hands of God. And there are some of these uh, traditions for Purim that we could probably get behind today. Uh, often they will, well, each year they'll gather and read the entirety of the book of Esther together. And you thought Jody's reading was long this morning. And during the reading, the people will use uh, noisemakers. They'll boo and hiss when Haman's name is read, and they'll cheer when Mordecai's name is read. There's another uh, tradition that they have where people attempt to read all of the name, names of Haman's ten sons in a single breath, in verses 7 to 9 there. This is the disappointing uh, aspect of Jody's performance this morning. She didn't do that, but... They do this to demonstrate how quickly their lives were snuffed out. It's the way that they celebrate God's protection for them. And then there are probably some traditions that we should not embrace but avoid. The Talmud, which is actually kind of like an ancient commentary on the New Testament, or the Old Testament, it prescribes a drinking game in which participants are encouraged to drink a shot of liquor each time Haman's name is read or Mordecai's name is read. And they're supposed to drink so much during the course of this game, during the course of the reading, that you cannot tell the difference between the phrases, blessed be Mordecai or cursed be Haman. So like I said, there are probably some that we shouldn't embrace. Um, But let's talk for a few minutes about the specifics of what Purim was actually designed to celebrate. Purim is about celebrating a muted display of sovereignty, a muted display of sovereignty. So at this point in the story, it's probably hard to, to catch this on a, just a cursory reading, but it has been nine months since Haman was killed in his own backyard and all of his wealth given over to Mordecai. Nine months. And the day has finally arrived on which the Persians may legally attack the Jews. Remember, Haman cast the Purim to see which day this day would be, and it was finally here. And so take a look at the end of verse 1. Now, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. What a phrase right there. The reverse occurred. It's like a little statement that sort of rolls off the tongue. But do we realize all that it took for the reverse to occur? There is an entire unbreakable chain of coincidences that if even one of them doesn't happen, God's people get wiped off the, place, uh, the face of the planet. So just follow with me here. If there was no feast, there would be no drunk Ahasuerus, no drunk king, no call to Vashti, no call to Vashti, no refusal by Vashti, no refusal, no angry king, no angry king, no foolish counsel, no foolish counsel, no Vashti deposal, no Vashti deposal, no Esther, no Esther, no Jews, no Jews, no Jesus, no Jesus, no hope. So, so in the middle of the story, God is not merely hoping that Ahasuerus will suffer from insomnia so that he'll read the history books, so that Mordecai can be recognized, so that Haman's plan can go off the rails, so that the Jews are spared from annihilation, so that Jesus eventually comes, so that we're safe from our sin and certain forever death. God's not hoping that those things all come together. God's presence might be muted, but it is not absent. So I, th- I think the reason the Holy Spirit breathed this book out, this story into existence, 
is so that we can be sure. We can bet the house. We can roll the Purim. That whatever happens to us in the big moments, in the small moments of our lives, our decisions, our mistakes, our regrets, our victories, all of them are links in God's sovereign plans for our lives. And not just for our individual lives and experiences, but, but for His greater work in history. So the name of this feast, Purim, is intentional double entendre, signifying that our lots, our destiny as God's people, isn't a gamble. It's not a gamble. The fate of the Jews did not rest in Haman's casting of the lots. Only God determines the roll of the dice and the fate of the people. It's too bad, really, that Haman hadn't read his proverb for the day. This is what it says in Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If only he'd known that. I think it's interesting to note here the sort of change in narrative style that happens in chapter 9. Prior to now, the author has been slowly building dramatic tension. It's been drawn out. The tension has been thick. But the author doesn't do that here. He departs from that approach. There's no tension about how this death day unfolded. We hear the end of the story in the very first verse of chapter 9. And I think this sort of downshift in storytelling is actually an intentional move by the author. There's no suspense about what happens on this death day when all the Persians are attacking the Jews. No suspense at all because there was never any question about how this day was going to end in the first place. No question. Remember what Mordecai says to Esther way back in chapter 4? He says, if you keep silent at this time, if you don't go to the king, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In Mordecai's mind, there is no question there's no suspense about how this day was going to end. The 13th day of the 12th month of Adar was always going to end the same, with God's people being delivered and the Messianic line being preserved. No question. There was never any suspense about this day, which is why the author summarizes it in a single sentence at sort of like the, the beginning uh, portion of chapter 9. Now, there was suspense about how God was going to bring this to, uh, to come to pass, but there was never any suspense that he would bring it to pass. Mordecai didn't have to understand his path to know how it would end. He didn't have to understand his current circumstances to know the end of the road. He knew God's promise couldn't be thwarted. You, we, don't have to understand the fullness of our paths to know how they will end. God's promises for you can't be thwarted. And here's how you can know this. When the Jews should have been eliminated, they were still standing. When the odds were stacked against them, they were still standing. And hundreds of years later, after that death day, the odds would look quite similar on another death day. A dying man would be sprawled out on a cross, hammered hopelessly to its beams. And from, from within that story, in that moment in history, Man, things looked bleak. It looked like God had actually abandoned his people, that his, his messiah, messianic figure couldn't, couldn't cut it. He was failing to keep his promises, and Satan had gained the mastery over God and Jesus. But 
just like the Jews in Esther, the reverse occurred, right? When Jesus should have been eliminated, he was still standing. And here's what the author wants us to gather here. If, if we are in Christ, you can be sure that while you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and some of you are probably in it right now, the valley of the shadow of death, you can know that you're not alone in it, and you can know what's on the other side of the valley. You may not understand your current path, but you can know what's at the end of the path because you're in Jesus. The end of the path is the loving arms of your king and your creator. So God, right now, in the mundaneness of your life, his sovereignty is on display in your life, wherever you work, play, shop, eat. God's sovereignty may be muted, but it is present and it is powerful and active and it will lead you all the way home. You can rest in that. In God's upside-down economy, where the reverse occurs, Haman's poor turns into the Jews' porim. A very dark Friday turns into a very good Friday. The Last Supper turns into the Lord's Supper. So I hope we can all feel that certainty today that Esther is designed to make us feel. I hope we can know that though there is drama in your life in the present, and maybe unpleasant drama, the end is already set. The game has been won. We don't know how all the specifics work themselves out in our lives quite yet, but make no mistake, the dots are being connected in your life to create a masterpiece of, of glory and victory. Jesus will eventually, probably later than you want, he'll eventually bring clarity. Until then, we look back for stability. We look back to the cross for stability. And we look up for strength and we look here for truth. That's how we hang on. But while we're wading through the thick of whatever it is that you're up against in your life, while you're wading through it, waiting for Jesus to bring clarity, it can be really challenging to know what to do, what choices to make. How do I live? But I think this is sort of the big idea of Esther's life. She lived a perplexing life of ambiguity. A perplexing life of ambiguity. Some of her choices are perplexing. But if we're honest, the path forward for her, you got to put yourself in her shoes for a minute. The path forward for Esther was almost impossibly perilous. And some of her choices, that they might seem clear years later, were, were really ambiguous in the moment. Esther was up against some very, very, very challenging choices. Persia was not a pleasant place to be a woman. Esther never should have been forced into the nearly impossible position that she was. It never should have happened. Ahasuerus' particular method of selecting a wife to be, uh, and to be queen was vile. It was disgusting. It was supremely uh, manipulative. And yet somehow, in God's strange providence, this is where Esther found herself. And what could she do, really? What was she supposed to do? I mean, if Esther knew that her leadership and influence were going to be needed to rescue her people, I think you could, in the end, rationalize at some level the choice that she makes. The problem is she didn't know that this is the way that God was going to be using her. But again, what was she supposed to do? Turn down the king? Risk her life? Have her head chopped off? Now, I do think that was an option 
for Esther. And I think the book of Daniel shows us this. By God's grace, by God's strength, it is possible to look death directly in the eye and say, bring it. I'm safe. I'm safe in Jesus. Daniel shows us that. Esther didn't do this. But that's super easy to say from a newly carpeted, perfectly air-conditioned room, isn't it? The question we have to grapple with as modern-day Christians is, what should she have done? What should she have done? And what should we do when we're faced with similar, hard-to-know-the-right-answer kind of dilemmas? What do we do? I think even in today's text, some of Esther's choices and decisions, if you're anything like me, make us squirm at least a little bit. I mean, she is absolutely ruthless here, vindictively violent. In verse 7, she allows all 10 of Haman's sons to be killed. Then in verses 13 and 14, she requests a second day of bloodshed, of killing to be allowed in the city of Susa, and to pile on and add insult to death. The day after all 10 of Haman's sons have been killed, she impales their dead corpses on large wooden wooden beams and displays them for the city to see. She's not messing around. Did she do the right thing here? Did she push past some kind of boundary? I'm not sure. It's ambiguous. Even the author doesn't weigh in on whether or not she was right or wrong. It's uncertain. And I think that is exactly the point. Ian Duguid says this, regardless of whether Esther and Mordecai always knew what the right choice was or whether they had the best motives, God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his purposes. Other than Jesus, even the godliest of people in the Bible were flawed, often confused and sometimes outright disobedient. So we may not be sure what the right decision is. Move or not move. Change jobs? Stay. Marry that person or not. Buy this car or no. Now, I think when it comes to these kinds of like real-life decisions— The best we can, we ought to follow biblical wisdom on these decisions, but sometimes at the end of the day, you just don't know, right? What am I supposed to do? And that's the point. When you just don't know, God's got you. He's patient with you, whether or not you make the right call. My favorite commentary, uh, commentator throughout this series uh, is a woman named Karen Jobes, and she says this, She says, reflection on the events described in Esther should make us more open to the creative and unexpected ways God works in us and through us. We are to live with the knowledge that both our best moments and our worst are all a part of what God is doing in us and through us in the lives of others. We cannot see the end of the matter from the beginning or the middle. The story of Esther reassures us that we don't have to. This is the whole point. God uses us despite us, not because of us. But let's leave Esther alone for a minute here. We've asked a lot of hard questions of her over these last couple of weeks, but what I don't think we can do here is leave God alone. How do we make sense of this level of violence? Not just here, but in other parts of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, there are some really challenging commands from God. And so let's look at a disconcerting war on evil here, a disconcerting war on evil. If you recall, when Esther 
came clean about her true identity and tried to have Haman's decree revoked, Hazuerus said it wouldn't work. <clears throat> Excuse me. Once a, uh, the king decreed a decree, uh, it, was done, it was a done deal. All they could do was issue a counter decree, which is what they did. If you flip back to Esther chapter 8, you can see this in verses 10 to 14. Then, then Mordecai sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. And so in today's reading, that was chapter 8, in today's reading in chapter 9, we just heard that the Jews made good on this. And in the end, they killed 75,000 Persians who attacked them. Chapter 9, verse 16. Was God cool with this? Why is this level of violence okay? Or is it okay? Surely there was another way to do this, right? I think there are other, at least from our human perspective, troubling displays of violence in the Scriptures. We read of God using water to destroy the world. God using fire to destroy an entire city. Sodom and cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. God using people to destroy entire nations, the Canaanites. So what are we to make of a good and gracious and loving God engaging in violent acts like these? Maybe you're squirming like I have been all week. Some of us have sought to alleviate the tension by removing parts of the Bible that make us squirm. Benjamin Franklin was famous for this. Others have unhitched their wagons from the Old Testament and tried to just hone in on Jesus, the peace that Jesus brings. But that approach won't work either. Here's what one commentator says. He says, many Christians have disowned the Old Testament in order to avoid embracing the bloody acts of God that may be found in its pages. They note the tremendous difference between the God of the Old Testament on the one hand and Jesus Christ on the other, who instructs us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. However, disregard for the Old Testament is only too convenient, and those who do so ignore the fact that the New Testament builds on the revelation of the Old Testament, both implicitly and explicitly affirming its message. Furthermore, the New Testament in the final analysis is equally bloody as the Old Testament. It will not do simply to divorce the Old Testament from the canon and shape the God that we worship in the image of what we think is acceptable. I could preach an entire sermon series on this. Books and books and books and books have been written about this topic. So I certainly can't do it justice in a few short minutes, but I want to take one small stab at alleviating a little bit of the, ten uh, the, the tension here that some of us might be feeling. I think we could narrow down the motives of holy war, and a holy war is like a war that God commands, not man, but God. I think we could narrow down the basic motives of holy war to three basic categories. God promoting peace, God protecting his people, and God preserving his Messiah. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, this isn't a holy war. This is not a holy war because God didn't command the Jews to kill these Persians. Mordecai did. So in what sense is this a holy war? Uh, I, think, I think, assuming that it isn't a holy war, uh, just by reading the, the book of Esther uh, is true, but if you take into account the entire history of the Old Testament, I think you'll find that um, it is an incomplete truth. Esther, the story of Esther, is another chapter in a story that was being written for at least 500 years. 
since Israel's first king, you might remember, King Saul, and more on him in just a minute. But looking at today's text, you'll note that the Jews' slaughtering of the Persians was in self-defense. The only people who die in this part of the story are those who are attacking God's people in intent on wiping their race, the Messiah's race, completely off the face of the planet. This is a more, I think, understandable motive for God approving his people engaging in these kind of mass killings here. Self-defense and protecting the line from which the Messiah would come. Those were important things to do. But where I think things get a little bit murkier for us is when God allows his people to go on violent offense to ensure peace. So I want us to strap our history hats on for just a minute here. You might recall that the story of Esther takes pains to ensure that we know that Haman is an Agagite. Agagite. Seven or eight times he's called Haman the Agagite. This is not an unintentional or meaningless detail. No one else gets this treatment in the book. The author is communicating something critical for us to understand here. So 500 years before Esther was even a thought, Agag was the king of a group of people called the Amalekites. So Haman the Agagite was actually Haman the Amalekite. And for any of this to matter to us, I need to give us a brief biblical history of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the very first people to attack Israel after they had been rescued from Egypt. So Israel's a brand new free nation. They're wandering the desert, a little vulnerable, I'm sure. And the Amalekites, they smell fresh blood. They're licking their chops. They attack. They try to kill them, kill the Israelites, and take all their stuff. Well, in Exodus 17, God gives his people victory over the Amalekites and then tells his people that he's going to utterly blot out the memory from Amalek, uh, from under heaven. Utterly blot out their memory from under heaven. So parents, imagine walking into a room where your child is being attacked. I bet you'd go off on that person, whoever it was. And you'd feel the same emotion that God feels for his people here. You're, you're feeling defensive for them. Uh, he's feeling defensive for them. He's wanting justice for them. And this, this sort of episode in Exodus 17 is not a solo performance by the Amalekite army in the wilderness either. They continually harass the Israelite villages through the years, and they try to take their lives, and they try to take their stuff over and over again. They were relentless bullies. So God's utter destruction of Amalek is aimed at holistic protection for his current and future people. God's utter destruction of Amalek is aimed at holistic protection for his current and his future people. So hundreds of years later, uh, after this Exodus 17 where the Amalekites are attacking the Israelites right after they escaped from Egypt, uh, hundreds of years later, Saul becomes the king of Israel. And one of his missions, right off the bat and straight from God, is to annihilate the Amalekites. Just get rid of them, utterly and completely. God wanted to use Saul to make good on his promise way back in Exodus 17, where he says, I am going to utterly wipe them off the, place, uh, the face of the earth. God promises his people that. And so we read this in 1 Samuel 15. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. So God's finally making good on this, right? Hundreds of years later, he's using Saul to come through on his promise to protect his people. So Saul's instructed to kill 
a whole people group, and horribly so, devote to destruction, but so that a better life may be possible for all of mankind, being rid of the violent and destructive Amalekites. This is God's holy intent for holy war, to protect his holy people. That's why he's doing this, to protect his people. But, but Saul, Saul gets this twisted. He doesn't fight for the purity and safety of God's people. He fights for plunder in his pockets. 1 Samuel 15, 9 says this, but Saul, this is right after, this is the next verse from what we just read. Saul spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. So Saul nearly obeys, sort of, but he doesn't. He lets the Amalekite king live along with all the best that the Amalekite civilization had to offer. Now, if you know the story, you are aware that eventually Samuel comes along and saves the day and does Saul's job for him and kills Agag, but not before Agag is able to get a woman pregnant. And wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? Hundreds of years later, one of Agag's descendants takes up the old Amalekite pledge to wipe Israel off the map. That descendant's name was... Yeah, good. That descendant's name was Haman. So think about it. If Saul would have just obeyed, if he would have just done the job, if we too would only obey, how much future heartache we'd save ourselves. The problem is in the moment, and this is a problem for Saul too, he couldn't see what the result was going to be. Neither can we see what the result is going to be. The future destruction that our current disobedience will reap. But make no mistake, you are sowing seeds right now that will one day reap fruit, whether that's for good or for evil. God calls on his people to eliminate the Amalekites because he knows they are a messed up people, evil, who constantly harass the people that he loves. God's call for annihilation, as challenging as it might be for us to accept, is loving. It's not fly off the handle lunacy. God knows, and so do we, that a pat on the back and, now don't do that again, Amalekites, that would not have been sufficient treatment for these people. They needed to be devoted to destruction. But Saul didn't seal the deal. And if you look closely, there's a subtle difference between the way Saul attacked the Amalekites and the way that the Jews did in the story of Esther. And the, the author takes pains for us to see this. Um, Look, look in verses 10, 15, and 16, and you'll note that the Jews didn't take any of the plunder. Remember what Saul did? That's what he did. He took all the best stuff and kept it. The Jews don't do that. That's because they understood, I think, the Old Testament law of not taking plunder in a holy war, in a war that God commands. And he commanded them not to take the plunder because he didn't want his people to be confused about the point of this disconcerting destruction. Don't miss this. God is saying. The point is not to get, to get rich quick. He didn't want them drawn into the same sins as his people's enemies. So think about it. If, if this violence that God commands was designed merely to increase the wealth of the Jews, I think we would have a good reason to feel pretty uncomfortable here. But that's not the point. This holistic violence could never be warranted for that reason. 
But holy war isn't about plunder. It's about souls. It's about the salvation of souls. So when we see God mounting holistic violence against his people's enemies in the Old Testament, just know that that is, just know that that is born from a heart that is expressing a loving and peaceful protection for his people. And it seems to me that the, the Jews in Persia and Susa consciously understood this. They understood themselves to be in some way filling in for Saul's disobedience by not taking the plunder. And I think, I think this is why the author tags Haman as Haman the Agagite rather than Haman the Amalekite to subtly highlight this connection and confirm for us that whether it's five minutes or 500 years, God does eventually come through in his promises and he does protect his people. So wiping out the Amalekites who'd strayed as far from the love and grace of God as they had, they were a danger to God's earth. As troubling as it seems superficially to us, wiping them out was a gift to the world. And if this still doesn't sit right with you, I want to remind us that while God is certainly angry with the wicked every day and protective for his people, his heart is definitely all out for everyone and anyone to come find life in him. God isn't a fly-off-the-handle deity who's looking for an excuse to flex his muscles of wrath. He's patient. He is slow to anger. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Ezekiel 33 As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. This is God's heart. It's not like the Amalekites are the only ones under a death sentence from God. Every one of us in here, from Amalekites to Americans and everyone in between, we're all under a death sentence because the punishment for sin is death. When sin entered the world, so did death, and death by sin. It is only because of God's extraordinary grace that Adam and Eve were not killed on the spot when they rebelled and stuck their fists in God's face and that fruit into their mouths. It's the same for us. It's because of grace that any of us are breathing right now. God is kind to us. In this sense, I don't think it should surprise us that God ordered the death of the Amalekites, but rather we should stand in amazement that he lets any of us live. That's like the reverse concept of this. And there is only one way and one reason that he lets any of us live. God's ultimate strategy against sin and evil was awaiting the perfect warrior who would execute divine justice with clean hands and a pure heart. His name is Jesus. And I wish we had more time to draw, time to draw on the implications of this, but we don't. So I just I want to wrap the series with a reminder of the point of Esther. Let's not forget the main point of this book. And I want to refresh our memories on this uh, by refreshing our memories of a story I told us uh, at the very beginning of the series. In this story, the princess and the goblin, it's called, Princess Irene must leave the safety of her castle to go rescue her friend, whose name was Curdie. And the only way she can find her way through the dark and twisted Ca uh, 
goblin cave, so she's up against goblins. I, f- I forgot to, to mention that. But she, she has to make her way through the dark and twisted caverns of the goblin caves. The only way she can do this is by holding on to an invisible thread that this mysterious woman gives to her. She can't see the thread. She can only feel it. So to let go of it at any point was incredibly dangerous because she wasn't guaranteed to find it again. Don't let go of the thread. Keep hold of it. But by always grasping the thread, wherever it seemed to lead, even when the way was difficult, Irene found her way into the dark caverns and then back out into the light of the real world. As Christians, I think we can relate. We follow God in a dark, godless world. It takes effort to keep our fingers on the thread, but we must. To let go is dangerous. To let go is dangerous. You might be going into the goblin hole right now, not knowing one foot from the other, not knowing what's ahead, but I want to encourage each of us this morning to hold on. Hold on to the providence of God. Hold on to the Word of God. Nothing in your life is coincidence. Nothing. And it is only the thread of truth that can sustain you and ultimately lead you home. To let go is a dangerous game. Hold on, Trinity. Hold on. And here's the ironic twist about Irene's thread. She didn't know where it was going. She didn't know that her friend needed rescuing. She didn't know why it was taking her into the caves. She just knew to follow it. She wasn't using the thread to get what she wanted. She just followed it, even into trouble. It led her to unexpected places, troubling places, dangerous places. But in the end, it is good that she followed the thread. She saved Curdie's life. The thread was invisible, just like it appears that the God, that, that God in this book of Esther was invisible. His word isn't even whispered one time. In our own lives, sometimes it feels like God is invisible. But invisibility didn't mean the thread wasn't reality for Irene. And God's invisibility doesn't mean that he is invisible, uh, that, that he isn't real and trustworthy. So the point is this. There are no chance encounters in your life. It's no mistake that God has placed you in your cube with your cube mate. It's no happenstance that you're on the block with the neighbors that you're on the block with. It's not a coincidence that you're in this church with your gifts. We need them, and you ours. Hold on to the invisible thread of God's providence and just know that there is no happenstance. Esther blows that out of the water. It's only providence, no happenstance. Esther has taught us that God is always doing significant work in what seem like really insignificant mundane moments. We found God's camouflage, ordinary work throughout Esther. And in the end, we'll be able to see the exact same kind of purposeful, providential intervention in our own lives. When we get to the end, we'll look back and say, ah, that's it. It makes sense. I didn't see it then. God gave us Esther to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is powerfully present, even when he is apparently absent. Grab a hold of that thread, Trinity and follow where it leads.